Welcome to the Relationship Road Trip, navigating the twists and turns of all the important relationships in your life. I'm Ben Azevedo, your one and only backseat driver. I'm Dr. Don Fernando Azevedo, clinical psychologist, executive coach, and voiceover artist, your navigator. And I'm Kim Azevedo, licensed marriage and family therapist, taking all sorts of turns on the neurodivergent highway, your mechanic. All right, drivers, here's your exit. Watch that turn. is by Carl Jung. The shoe that fits one person pinches another. There is no recipe for living that suits all cases. I hate it when my shoes pinch my feet. That's no good. I don't like to be pinched on the foot. But you do like to wear suits. That's true. Last week, we discussed the impact of memory impairment and diseases of the brain that trigger this. This week, for our final episode on this arc on intelligence, we're talking about the diversity of intelligence specifically the relatively newer term neurodiversity. Kim, tell us more about what this means and where it comes from. So a person named Judy Singer, a sociologist who also has autism, started using the term neurodiversity in the late 1990s. It refers to a concept that certain developmental disorders are normal variations in the brain, that it's not actually any bad thing or illness like many people contextualize it as. Not a disease, Uh, huh? Yeah. It became an important term in that it was a validating experience for individuals who perceived the world differently and its strengths focused instead of a diagnosis or a disease or an illness. Or a lack, Um, right? A disability and missing piece. Disability. That's the word I was looking for. Thank Mm -hmm. you. Speaking of neurodiversity, forgetting your words frequently is part of the neurodiversity (laughs) world. So, awesome. The autistic spectrum. So uh, what kinds of things are, what's an example of neurodiversity? Dyslexia, ADHD is a really commonly known one. Along that, you've got dyscalculia, developmental coordination disorders or dyspraxia, synesthesia, which is, in my opinion, a fun one to experience, but can also be debilitating in some cases. And Tourette's syndrome, there are a lot of different ones, but those are just some of the ones that I know off the top of my head. So you were saying that these are not disabilities. Are they related to disabilities? Do you have to have a disability for it to count as neurodiversity? You do not need to have a disability or a diagnosis to count within the neurodiverse community. If you're aware that your brain doesn't quite function the same way that the standard expectation within the societal norm does. You mean the neurotypical? Yes, neurotypical. Then you're part of the neurodiverse community. That being said, being diagnosed with a disability gives people protections under the law and it allows kids to have special education or support within the school system. It also gets you access to more accommodations and stuff at work. And one of the key things to remember is that neurodiverse folks have a harder time operating within the typical education system, which is geared for neurotypical individuals. So however we term this, giving those folks at least some 
accommodation is an important aspect. It's like if you needed glasses but were prevented from wearing glasses at school, you would be at a disadvantage. We all accept glasses, yeah. so, but we don't accept neurodiversity because it's not easy to see. So you need a different kind and we of glasses. Haven't, we haven't studied it that much. I mean, if, if we were only talking, started talking about it in this way in the 90s, right. I, I know we, we probably know there's lots of different ways that brains perceive things, but it's fairly recent to be trying to accommodate that and, and think about it. And it ties back to, to what we've been talking about with different types of intelligence, different ways of learning. It also comes uh, from a, a medical background that approached folks with neurodiversity issues with a dismissive quality. There was a whole class of folks called imbeciles in the 1800s. These were people who didn't learn as quickly as others or learn the way others did. So we've had derogatory terms for folks who didn't learn or understand the world the same way as neurotypical folks. And exclusionary. Yes. So there are the remedial classes for kids who didn't learn on time or special education classes for kids who aren't learning at the standard. And that gets a lot of people lumped into it. So a child with ADHD who's struggling in school because they're just not interested in this topic now ends up in the remedial class where they're even less engaged and it becomes more challenging and we start hating school. And then it's just kind of this snowball downhill because we're not actually paying attention to the need of the child. We're just saying you don't match. So you're going to go over here instead. So acknowledging neurodiversity alongside of disability as not necessarily the same thing, but as potentially related is part of accepting and helping to, uh, helping to support folks who are neurodiverse. Yeah. And take right. a lot of the, the barriers out. And mm. so that they can succeed as well as they possibly can succeed. And many of them succeed very, very well. They just need a little bit of support and certainly a lot of acceptance. We can talk about the origin of a lot of the words that were derogatory for the neurodiverse population. As late as 1912, an idiot was the lowest level of mental development. So that's the origin of that word. It was a clinical diagnosis. And then there were imbeciles. They were a little bit better than idiots but not as good as morons. Morons oh. were better than both imbeciles and idiots, but not a typical child. These were clinical okay. diagnoses that became very quickly pejorative words. What are the, what's the etymology of those words? They don't sound very clinical, but that's because I only have uh, experience with them as pejorative terms. <laughs> well, you know, I could look up the etymology. I only know the definition. I mean, I only know the Oh, okay. So, I mean, I, you were clinical. Not and this was yeah. 1912. Yeah. Not that long ago. Right? And the book was called Backward and Feeble-Minded Children. Again, mm -hmm. this whole prejudice about if you're not a neurotypical, then you're, let's put you in a box somewhere. The etymology of imbecile is physically weak because the Latin is without a supporting staff, lacking a staff. That's interesting. Mm. Thanks, Google. Oh, well, um, moron comes from the Greek moros, which means foolish or stupid. Great. What was the last one? Idiot. Idiot, yeah. Old French from Latin, idiota, ignorant person. Yeah. Sure. Or from Greek, a private person, mm -hmm. a layman, or an ignorant person. Love to find the origins of words. So how does this affect 
the workplace and education. We talked about education a little bit already. Like it certainly affects how people learn. What about in the workplace? Well, what's really cool is we're slowly researching and building ways to accommodate individuals who are not neurotypical. And a study from ADHD Aware suggested that 30 to 40% of the population are a part of the neurodiverse spectrum. I was going to ask you if we knew how, like roughly how much, it's probably a lot more than we think because it's, there's such a range too. Like you you think about all the extreme examples, Mm -hmm. but there's probably lots and lots of people who have mild ADD or mild whatever. Right. Who might not have gone and found a diagnosis. They've just discovered coping skills. Right. And who have coping skills to learn within the norm Mm -hmm. and have just gotten by. Yeah. Right. Which is called masking for the record. Masking your behaviors so that you fit in within the norm of society. Is that not specific to autism and... Stuff like that? It does fit within the autism community. And I believe they're kind of the ones who started that term. And it also fits with other neurodiverse individuals working to minimize behaviors in order to appear, quote, quote, normal. And I've had this conversation with Papa before. I guess I have synesthesia. I didn't really think of it that way, but I visually see people's words as like closed captioning when they're talking and occasionally they have colors associated or kind of like almost a texture associated with it. And I've learned how to mask the behavior of like tracking the word over someone's head as they talk or, you know, staring off in a direction, almost reading closed captioning next to their head rather than looking at them. So it's just a a behavior of How do I look as normal as possible in this various situation? I remember our band director telling me one time that he looked at people's mouths instead of their eyes because it was overwhelming. Or he'd look above your head. Yes. And honestly, that is a tactic I have used before. If I'm having a really intense conversation with somebody, maybe not intense, but if I've, especially like if you just meet somebody, you don't know them very well. Mm -hmm. And it's like, for whatever reason, the conversation is kind of overwhelming looking at like a nose or a mouth instead of directly at the eyes feels better. But Mm -hmm. anyway, I guess that's masking as well. It's all about how to appear as normal. (laughs) Strong quotation. A movie or something? How to appear normal? Probably. Probably. It's got to at least be an album title. It's a great (laughs) album title. Yeah. All right. Um, So how, how do you, how does the neurodiverse community get help out there? And especially, I guess, in the workplace. Unfortunately, typically you're going to need some form of a diagnosis, which means testing, which means money. So this can be a kind of exclusionary dynamic in which if you can't afford to get tested and diagnosed, then you're going to have pretty limited access to stuff. Again, gatekeeping. On top of that, if you have your diagnosis ready and you go to HR in your workplace and you're like, hey, this is what my doctor has said. This is what I need. Guess what? Here's a packet of like 80 pieces of paper that you're going to have to fill out and sign and get notarized and, you know, have this person sign. And again, you're looking at tons of red tape, which is so annoying. And you can get accommodations, though. So the Americans with Disabilities Act allows or requires corporations to provide reasonable uh, accommodation. They just don't make it easy to get there. 
Some companies And do uh-huh. they define what reasonable accommodation is? It can be lots of different things. It can be software that allows you to dictate instead of write, if that's a, a difficulty for you. It can be software that reads stuff to you if reading, if you're dyslexic and, you're, and reading is a difficulty for you. It can be access to, to graphical interfaces. So if you think and plan better with images rather than the written word, there are software accommodations for that. It can be extra time to accomplish tasks. What else? Fidgets and moving seats. Oh, yeah. There's a big craze for fidget spinners a while back. Sure. Standing desks. So folks with ADHD, particularly who have hyperactivity, do better with a standing desk. Those kinds of things, those are all reasonable accommodations. Also, the request of a quiet or remote workspace, the use of white noise machines, maybe even more frequent reviews or some form of a mentorship program just to kind of keep you on track. Alternative lighting. So one of the things I experience is the sound of fluorescent lights Mm. is beyond distracting for me. Luckily, in my office, I can have whatever lighting I want. But when I've worked in other situations, it can be really hard. Can't have fires. Fair. Okay, fine. (laughs) I can have the majority of any type of lighting that I would like. (laughs) (laughs) I'm playing your role Uh, today. Fair enough. Sassy Don. (laughs) (laughs) There have been other contexts where I was not able to turn off fluorescent lights, and it was extremely distracting and very hard for me to work. That's that's really interesting. This was an admin job, so no, not really. Mm. I had to interact with other people. That's also challenging. Yeah. So these are some really interesting tools and available things if you ask and are able to get through the red tape that's needed. And, and um, one of the biggest pieces of red tape, by the way, is that often docs are much less willing to write things in a timely fashion and write them in a way that a business can understand so that accommodations can be made. So a lot of the hmm. pa- patients that I've had were that was needed and what the, the organization required a medical doctor. So my written stuff was not as easily accepted. Getting something from some medical doctors has been difficult. And I have written it for them in the past just to get moving through the system. The old uh, MD is striking again. Is also a really cool website called Ask Jan, mm-hmm. Job Accommodation Network. And it has resources for employers, for individuals, and the different ADA accommodations, as well as what you can ask for. I would have had no idea to ask for any of these things or even like, I mean, I think some of these things could help, I I guess, lots of people. I mean, I had a standing desk for a while. It was great. I don't know that I needed it for this reason, but it was nice. And I don't, I guess this list of things is really interesting. And I would love to see that kind of information made more clear to everybody across the workforce and just to people in general. You may not have ADHD, for instance, but if you're looking at this list of accommodations, like, oh, that would actually be really nice. That would help me work better. That would be great. Why can't we all? Or ideas, if you know that you do have dyslexia, the site suggesting here's some things that may help you that you didn't know about. Mm -hmm. Like, how, How do you even know about this stuff? Right. And trying to bumble through it and find what works best for you. Ben, you're right. You don't necessarily have to have a diagnosis and also still fit within the neurodiverse spectrum. Right. Um, 
Yeah. And like we're talking about, this could be like a huge amount of the population that could benefit from these kinds of things without needing, you don't, it doesn't need to be a diagnosis or like a whole thing. Just like, oh, it would be really nice if I could have a different type of chair or alternative lighting. I think in a lot of workspaces, at least there's some amount of freedom to do that, but in a lot, there's not. Right. And that sucks. One of the things that I think of is someone who's working in a cubicle in yep. a large open space. You're not going to be able to change the lighting, most likely. A white noise machine ain't going to work. You have coworkers walking behind you, having conversations, doing these other things. And that's so distracting. Even for many people who are, quote, quote, neurotypical. I don't think anyone's neurotypical, in my opinion. But, you know, I mean. I was going to say, I feel like as this research evolves, what we're going to find out is that there is no neurotypical. There's just a lot of different varieties of how brains work. And some of them work more efficiently in some ways. And some of them work more efficiently in other ways. And it's all just a big old jumble. Well, yep. that's probably true. And there's the 80-20 rule. 80% of people operate in a particular kind of way for the most part. And that's what mm. neurotypical really is. And 20% operate outside of that sufficiently enough that it puts barriers in front of them to be able to compete with the folks who are neurotypical in the world that is geared towards neurotypical people. I also think it's important that neurotypical people recognize the things that they may use without really paying attention to it. So fidget toys, a standing desk, and recognize that, hey, this helps me. And if it helps someone else, that's awesome. And let me advocate for this. Let me say like, hey, this is a really useful thing. I have fidget rings I bought off of Amazon for like $3. And they have completely changed my ability to do this podcast because fidgeting with something else, as well as just listening in general, being able to be more present, all of these different things. And that's a pretty minimal cost. It's minimal impact to others. I have one ring that makes more noise than the other ones. One of the issues with fidget spinners was how much noise they make and how distracting they are. The tool that I used as a child was a little putty eraser. I didn't know I had ADD until I was like this many years old. <laughs> I guess I have whatever the opposite is because those fidget things distract me completely. <laughs> I like spin it and then I'm just like, oh, I just can't think about anything else. That's called hyperfocus, <laughs> but that's a whole different thing. Yeah. And uh, even small things like timers or now that we've got smartwatches where you can set a whole series of alarms and things to, to help folks. Oh, man. Anything that, it, that gets your attention. And for ADHD folks, sometimes they have hyper focus. That's an element of it. And they lose track of time. And so getting things done in a timely manner becomes super hard. Yeah. Some of it is training yourself to pay attention to those tools. I coach a lot of people who have various forms of attention and you do have to go through the learning curve of paying attention to the timer. As a child, I remember the little tomato timer that we had in the, the kitchen. Pomodoro. That thing dictated my life as a child, which was great because I got things done. And for me, you also have to recognize what is your attention span. And I know we're heavy talking on ADD and ADHD right now, but... You have to recognize what your natural attention span is and build your schedules off of that. So for me, I've built my attention span up to be 53 minutes because that's the length of my session. 
And then I need a seven minute recoup period in between sessions to get up, shake it out, come back. And now I'm focused again. When I'm writing notes, however, I've got the length of a note and then I need a three minute break. (laughs) But I've found that three minute break really resets me. So I'm able to focus back in again. And that's true for me, may not be true for anyone else. You have to figure it out for yourself in that regard. And that's Um, the biggest thing. If you're uh, neurodiverse, really paying attention to what works for you, what gets in the way and stop trying to do it the way everyone else does. Do it the way you do. Yeah. And for the neurotypical people out there, accept it. It doesn't really affect you if someone needs to stand up once an hour. Mm Mm-hmm. It doesn't really affect you if someone needs to stand up during your staff meeting. They can stand in the back of the room. These are small things that are really helpful for many people and don't harm the workflow at all most of the time. It's really important to meet with your supervisors, discuss what you need, talk with your teammates. You know, if you work in a team, your employer, talk with those that you work with and say, hey, Just so you know, this is kind of how I learn. This is how I flow. And let's figure out to make sure that I'm communicating in the way that you guys need. Because what they need may be different than what you need. Is there anything else we want to say about neurodivergence? Neurodivergence does not need to limit you. I am dyslexic and I have a PhD. I feel like that was a opening to a Neurodivergence Anonymous meeting. Well, it is because you Hello, know, if, you go through school, is if you go through school and you don't, reading was very difficult for me. I was very slow at it. It was difficult for me to take in information. But if you told the story to me, I remembered it in great detail. I masked by getting people to tell me the story all the time. <laughs> and I learned really well. I even did this in graduate school with colleagues who would read the books for me because I couldn't read them fast enough. And I would only read one or two books and we would share notes. And that was how I got through all of those things. Hopefully you learned something new about intelligence on this last episode of our arc about intelligence. Do you use any of the accommodations we talked about? Let us know on Facebook. Our next arc is going to be the last one of season two. We're hoping to get some new and some old guests on to talk about resilience. I know I've been kind of teasing an episode about resilience a few times now, but I promise we're going to actually get to it this time. Resilience is something that we've all needed a lot recently. So we want to talk about some examples of it in different contexts and some ways to develop better resilience. And and really, Ben was just setting you up to develop better resilience by teasing you and not delivering on it. So here, you've already started. Wait, (laughs) that's right. Patience. All right. Until next time, enjoy the drive. Thank you for listening to The Relationship Road Trip. We hope you enjoyed the episode and we want to know what you think. So write to us at questions at afpsych.com. You can also support the show by rating and reviewing us on iTunes or subscribing with your favorite podcast app. You can find more episodes of the show at relationshiproadtrip.com or wherever you download podcasts. The Relationship Road Trip comes out every Wednesday at 7 a.m., so don't forget to tune in next week. The Relationship Road Trip is brought to you by Azevedo Family Psychology, where they are dedicated to helping you create a life worth celebrating. You can learn more about their services at azevedofamilypsychology.com. This podcast is produced by Bear Cave Audio. Bear Cave Audio provides a range of audio services 
from original composition to podcast recording and editing. To learn more, go to bearcaveaudio.com or email ben at bearcaveaudio.com. Until we meet again, may the road rise up to meet you. May the wind be always at your back and may the sun shine warm upon your face. Thank you.